0: Everyone, and welcome to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and this show airs every week with 30 minutes of uh, hopefully insightful commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. You can also find these podcasts at www.jimfeeney.com, and you can subscribe to the show at Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and Buzzsprout, among other places. Today, I'm finishing up a two-part series on the principles that I believe should drive good government policy that I also discuss in my book, Locally Grown, The Art of Sustainable Government. Last week, we talked about two main principles that act as limits or boundaries within which everything else happens. They are sustainability and adherence to the U.S. Constitution. If a policy is unsustainable, like, for example, the endless printing of money by our Federal Reserve – then it eventually will fail because it causes hyperinflation and will collapse our economy. If a policy is unconstitutional, such as open borders, then hundreds of millions of immigrants will flood into our country, overwhelm the social safety net, and destroy the meaning of citizenship. These are common sense principles that most Americans understand. Last week, we also discussed other important principles that drive progress, like bottom-up, decentralized government to accommodate our country's diversity, and the primacy of individual rights over the common good when we're talking about a tiebreaker in difficult issues. This week, I will discuss uh, other important principles of locally grown government that I think will enhance the effectiveness and accountability of government for the people. Uh, The first principle I'd like to talk about is promoting work. Government policy must promote work because without productive work, there is no income to tax and government comes to a grinding halt. For example, if taxation becomes oppressive, citizens will work less and the economy just goes underground. This is what ultimately destroyed the Roman Empire. But what is work? I think most folks would say something like, the activities we do to earn money so we can buy things that we need to live. Uh, in the days before complex society, humans were hunter-gatherers like other species on the planet. Over time, we invented agriculture as a better mousetrap to feed everyone, and we ate better and more often, and our brains grew larger and more complex, storing and analyzing experience to figure out other ways to improve our lives. I'd wager that today most Americans don't have the foggiest notion how to feed themselves outside of a supermarket or a restaurant. Relatively very few people hunt or grow food anymore. We pay others to feed us so we can be accountants, lawyers, auto mechanics, computer programmers, and the like. It's all been woven into an efficient, virtuous economic matrix yielding tremendous benefits – in 1962, a U.S. economist named Arthur Oaken uh, observed a relationship that states that for every 1% increase in the unemployment rate, a country's gross domestic product will be roughly 2% lower than its potential GDP. This was later coined as Oaken's law, and it shows a virtuous multiplier effect by decreasing unemployment, in other words, increasing work. Um, His research quantifies what I believe to be self-evident, that productive work is contagious in a good way, which also aligns with the evolutionary need to feed, clothe, and house ourselves. Families are the oldest and most important government form. Families form the base of the power pyramid. People in a family should all have a clear view of the common good, loving and doing whatever possible to ensure the health and safety of all the members. As such, most activities in a household qualify as work, whether explicitly paid or not. Stay-at-home moms and dads are quite busy raising their kids, shuttling them to school and playdates and sports practices and games, volunteering for PTAs and coaching their teams. It's actual work, and it's not paid. Caring for elderly parents is not paid, but critical nonetheless. I can vouch for this as I am actively taking care of my elder parents. We can see easily the value of this work in the marketplace when we try to outsource it. In other words, have other people do it for us. Elder care is a $400 billion a year industry growing over 6% annually, while child care is a $38 billion industry growing at a similar rate. This is certainly work and it's valuable, but I don't know too many old citizens who wouldn't prefer being cared for by their kids in a family home setting. Work is also a primary source of self-esteem because doing something society values builds us up, gives us confidence and status, and plugs us into the greater social network of our nation. This is as it should be. People who are disabled or unemployed for long periods of time have higher rates of depression, substance abuse, and illness compared to those who work. Older people who continue working or actively volunteer rather than retiring to a sedentary life tend to be healthier with lower rates of dementia. Think of all the excess capacity we could unlock if we could mobilize our elderly. Society gets tremendous experience while bending the cost curve for healthcare and proliferating the general knowledge that's often lost as our institutions change over time. Productive, meaningful work is the mother's milk of a well-functioning society. The next principle I'd like to talk about is uh, evidence-based policymaking. Evidence-based policymaking is critical to just about every modern discipline from business to science to baseball to government. Policy must look at the outcomes generated by past decisions in order to improve future decisions. Seems straightforward. If the purpose of a government program is to reduce poverty, then it should do that. If it doesn't, the policy should be modified or scrapped. The modern effort to cure poverty was born when President Lyndon Johnson declared in his 1964 State of the Union address, this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. Yet, according to a 2017 study by the Heritage Foundation, the government has spent $22 trillion of U.S. taxpayer money fighting poverty since 1964. This spending, which does not include social security or Medicare, is three times the cost of all military wars in the u- in u s history since the American Revolution and including the american revolution and there 's been very little to show for it. the poverty rate in America was about fifteen percent in one thousand nine hundred and sixty five and still fifteen percent in two thousand and fourteen, only recently dropping due to improving economic conditions. This is according to the u s census. That's a pretty disturbing level of ineffectiveness. If policy doesn't change in the face of clear evidence that it doesn't work, there must be some other reason why the policy is in place. Unlike the business world, government policy often defies conventional logic. One wonders why politicians ignore the evidence. It follows that the policy must be serving some other goal that's different than what they're telling us. Usually, these, those goals are to increase the power of a small number of people. The next principle for locally grown government is simplification. One of the most important lessons in business I learned happened when I was running my company in Servio. I hired John McNeil as the CEO to help scale the company, and he introduced to us the concept of lean. For those of you not familiar with it, lean emerged as a popular and effective business process optimization discipline that focuses on eliminating waste in the process of delivering a product or service. It's the art of simplification, just like the haikus I write. The first serious practitioner of lean, though it really wasn't an organized uh, methodology then, was Henry Ford with his innovative auto assembly line. Shortly after World War II, Toyota founder, Kishiro Toyota, observed Mr. Ford's success and started to coalesce those observations into a set of principles that he instilled at Toyota. This went on to become one of the world's largest and most profitable auto companies. In 1996, authors James Womack and Daniel Jones further distilled the methodology in their book, Lean Thinking. Fundamentally, lean is the process of removing production constraints and waste. Removing waste in an organized, disciplined, and repeatable way makes things clearer and easier to see. I often imagine how powerful lean would be if it was applied to government. Let's just start with a rampant functional overlap between various federal government agencies. Take the Department of Agriculture, for instance, whose mission is to regulate and support farms. Over 70% of its budget goes to food programs for the poor, like food stamps. It also spends over $6 billion on forestry, which you would think would be better situated in the Department of the Interior. It also spends $1.4 billion on rural rental subsidies, another welfare program. Shouldn't that be situated in the Department of Housing and Urban Development? Our federal government spends 71% of its budget on entitlement and welfare programs across an alphabet soup of different agencies with different rules. Just eliminating the duplication of programs from where they logically belong would save a ton of overhead and billions and billions of dollars. Service would improve and we would get better reporting transparency from avoiding having to pull numbers buried in many departments. Unfortunately, again, this lack of transparency is a feature, not a bug, designed to obfuscate the true costs and accountability for our government. To me, the ability to simplify is a treasured skill, a real, real superpower – those who can make products that are easy to use, present ideas that are easy to understand, and simplify processes are valuable people in our society. They make a difference everywhere they go, and they usually make a lot of money along the way. Okay, folks, time to take a quick break, and we will be back shortly. Welcome back, folks, to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and today we are finishing up a two-part series talking about key principles that should underpin good government. I remember back in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president and Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House of Representatives. uh, They were two powerful leaders on opposite sides of the aisle, but they still found time to have a beer together to discuss business. That built trust and set the stage for them to negotiate their differences and produce the best working government in my lifetime. This detente between Reagan and a Democrat-controlled Congress enabled a rip-roaring economy and also defeated the communist Soviet Union. Uh, President Bill Clinton, who was a Democrat, was also a very good negotiator, a pragmatist, who understood how to give Republicans something they wanted in exchange for something Democrats wanted. With Clinton, the script was flipped, with the Democrats in the White House in a GOP-controlled Congress. The result was still highly effective welfare reform in another rip-roaring economy. The common thread here is that Democrat and Republican leaders were moderates versus being at the extremes of their party. This is in stark contrast to today, where the Democrat platform is dominated by the extreme of their party with a radical new big vision to restruct, restructure American society at its roots – in contrast, the GOP, which although more moderate, has no big vision for America. This is not the ideal context for effective negotiation of anything. The first principle of negotiation is to separate people from the problem. The vast majority of the town. this is sound advice. Negotiation is a method for resolving conflicts of interest, not for judging who is at fault. Most people, once they understand this, are willing to exchange concessions in order to satisfy their, their underlying interests. Effective negotiation means a win-win agreement where the parties reach a deal after considering each other's interests and each party gets as much benefit as possible when considering the opposing views. Nobody gets everything they want, but each party gets some of what they want. Doing this effectively is another superpower, along with being a simplifier and a positive enabler. Great negotiators are highly prized people. Unfortunately, it's becoming a lost art, especially in politics, where it's needed most. Now, notice, folks, that I said negotiation was a win-win. There are tons of examples of negotiations that were great for one party but not for the other. I've witnessed these from both sides of the table during my business career, but relationships get damaged when one side finds out they were taken advantage of. It's just not a sustainable long-term practice because people of this ilk get a bad reputation that ultimately hurts their long-term prospects. Win-win negotiation requires Real effort to understand the other side's motivations, what their interests are, their emotions, their priorities, their lines in the sand, etc. That means each side needs to be reasonably open about what they want. Bad deals happen when there is information asymmetry, where one party has better information than the other. Win-win negotiation requires that both sides operate in good faith. This means you actually intend to do a deal We've seen many times in politics where one party pretends like they want a deal, but really have some other ulterior motive. They want to be seen as willing to negotiate to improve the appeal to voters. A good example of this is immigration policy. Both sides of the aisle pay lip service to wanting reform, but won't, wanting reform, but won't budge on any key points because they see value in keeping it as an election issue. If I'm going to say no to everything you want, then that's not really a negotiation. But once in a while, people are the problem, and normal negotiation strategies won't ever work. Today, we see ideologues that want to tear our country down, rebuild it into a thought control police state that throws the Constitution into the trash. They seek to divide the country and unleash civil unrest on our streets, calling for the destruction of free speech, destruction of due process, and erasing American history. These ideologues see people in terms of absolute good and evil, and they want evil people to be punished. If you are in conflict with them, they won't hesitate to attack you verbally or even violently. Even the best negotiators can't reach a win-win result with people like this, since their underlying grievances can't really be addressed with a settlement. In these rare cases, the only choice is to walk away and deprive them of the chance to punish you. Not the end of the world in business dealings, but when it comes to politics and civil society, what happens next can be frightening. Negotiation expert Judith White tells us that 99% of the time, the parties have rational underlying interests where with some patience and the right strategies, a win-win settlement is possible. The secret to negotiating, after all, is to find out what the other guy wants and how much it's worth to him. However, in those rare cases, when the other guy wants to use the negotiation to control or punish you, you're better off to just walk away and resolutely execute your plan B. Next, I want to talk about harnessing excess capacity, a very important locally grown principle. But it's not an obvious principle, but represents a huge opportunity for our nation. Excess capacity defined is an economics concept used to describe a situation where a company is producing at a lower output than it's been designed for. In other words, you have too much supply for the existing demand. Economists refer to this excess capacity as slack when referring to the collective economy. Eventually, excess capacity over the long term indicates a poorly managed company that's not going to last very long. There are very successful companies that have found ways to monetize excess capacity for consumers. Uber and Lyft, for example, have single-handedly created the $12 billion ride share market where you're paid to drive your car like a taxi. It's become a huge second job for millions of people. Airbnb has harnessed the excess capacity of people's homes and apartments to generate revenue for owners and more choices for consumers. A good current example of excess capacity is the result of the rapid growth of online retailers like Amazon. This has put enormous pressure on brick-and-mortar retailers who are closing stores or even going bankrupt. Neiman Marcus and J.C. Penney are two of the most recent casualties. There are four lease signs at shopping malls all over America. Tens of millions of Americans have been working from home due to the COVID crisis, which has many companies questioning why they need so much office space. In my opinion, there's going to be a permanent major excess capacity of commercial real estate that's going to provide a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs who can find productive alternate uses for this real estate. The next principle I'd like to talk about is called the double bottom line. This is a way of doing business that combines profitability and the common good. It extends the bottom line that measures financial performance with a second bottom line to measure positive social impact. Things like reducing poverty, increasing affordable housing, improving the environment are all areas where startup activity is vibrant. Several years ago, the federal government even established a new corporate entity called a B Corp, which must include as part of its mission contributing in a verifiable, transparent, and accountable way support for social good that balances profit and purpose. A good example of a double bottom-line company is Plastic Bank, which has developed a blockchain-based software platform to enable the exchange of plastic for money, products, or cryptocurrency. This enables recycling around the world and stops the flow of plastic into our oceans while helping people living in poverty build better futures. People collect the plastic and bring it to special recycling centers where companies pay for the plastic to reuse and manufacturing more plastic products. The company has a sustainable economic model while cleaning up our oceans and providing economic opportunity for those in poverty. In politics, double bottom line typically takes the form of public-private partnerships where risk and rewards are shared between the government and a private sector partner. The terms of a public-private partnership are typically set out in a contract or agreement that outlines the responsibilities of each party and clearly allocate the risk. Public utilities are great examples of these kinds of partnerships. They're highly regulated, but they, but, but also protected monopolies that guarantee a stable rate of return for investors while the public gets reasonably priced electrical power. Public infrastructure projects like highways, airports, and dams are other examples of these kinds of partnerships. So now I'd like to spend a little bit of time assimilating some of these principles we've been talking about over two episodes to give an example of what locally grown government could be in action. In my opinion, we have a massive, untapped reservoir of excess capacity in our nation's elder population. There's no doubt we're racing towards a future with a lot more old folks. According to the U.S. Census, 2035 will mark the first time in our nation's history that the number of people 65 years or older will exceed the number of people 18 years or younger. America mirrors a global trend where people are simply not getting married or having babies at the same rate as previous generations. In wealthier nations with rising expectations, the cost of raising and educating children has risen much faster than the ability to pay for them. This is becoming a massive problem in most of the developed world where countries have made significant financial promises to old folks with the expectations that young workers will continue to work and pay taxes to finance them. And these elder programs are growing much faster than our economy and the rate of inflation. This is setting us up, unfortunately, for a future dominated by fights over declining resources between the old and the young. Despite the challenges, there are reasons for optimism because the needs and capabilities of the generations are complementary. Evolutionary developmental psychology is a field of study that applies the basic principles of evolution to understand the development of human behavior. Researchers in this field believe that old and young people are designed to help each other. As people age, they have a strong desire to be needed and wanted, especially by younger people. Just ask any grandparent. They want to be wanted. They have an innate desire to protect, nurture, and guide younger people. The earliest evidence of religion in humans came in the form of ancestor worship, where ancient Mesopotamian cultures began to bury their dead, in many cases near their living quarters. The elders of the tribe were the keepers of the tradition, the human databases that passed on wisdom to the youth. Grandmothers especially played a key role in helping with childbearing and daily chores. Old people balance the selfishness of children as they pass on virtues like patience, emotional control, and other attributes to ensure that the next generation survives and prospers. In exchange, younger people respect and revere their elders both in their life and then after their death. Until the mid-20th century, most Americans lived in multi-generation households. People were not nearly as conscious of age, since everyone had a job in the household and was respected for that job. Grandma and Grandpa were simply members of the nuclear family, not an occasional visitors that the grandchildren rolled their eyes at as they returned to the cultural wasteland of their digital devices. As the eldest of six children from a father who was the youngest of 11 children of Italian immigrants, I remember the multi-generational household. We all worshipped my grandparents, who deserved our worship. They were better than we were, and we knew it. Despite the powerful evolutionary fit between the needs of the old and the young, the connections required for this to work seem to be mostly broken in today's environment. The primary means of communication between young people these days is digital. Instagram and Snapchat are private rooms with adults-not-welcome signs on the door, Meanwhile, most grandparents have neither the ability nor the desire to communicate in this fashion. So, how can we harness this great excess capacity resource of our aging population? Well, Singapore provides a working example. They've taken a holistic approach to an aging society by creating a, what they call a kampong, K-A-M-P-O-N-G, for all ages. These are villages that support seniors as, as continuing participating members of society they are multi-generational living quarters adjacent to playgrounds and schools where seniors and children interact. They enlist a host of stakeholders to uh, help fast-track zoning requirements and access to capital for these environments. Similar projects are popping up in the United States, such as Gorham House in Portland, Maine, an assisted living community built in proximity to schools and playgrounds where the community shares health care and other services. Another example is a startup called Nestor Leach, pairs elder homeowners with spare rooms in their house with uh, university students who need affordable housing. The students get reduced rent by helping the elder homeowners with household chores. So maybe we can combine the emerging excess capacity of commercial real estate with the need for intergenerational communities. Just saying, of all the things that divide us, the gap between old and young should be the most manageable. Connecting across generations is not only pragmatic, it's an essential part of the human experience and a key to the cycle of life. After all, the young will soon be the new old, faster than they ever imagined. Well, that's my show for today, folks. Thanks for listening, and let's continue this discussion to help restore our American middle ground. If you want to continue the conversation, please subscribe to my website at www.jimfeeney.com, and you can receive my regular newsletter and comment on it with others. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. In the meantime, remember, united we stand, divided we fall, each one for the other, and all for all. Take care.